Let me just go back and talk about the phrase diversity, equity, and inclusion and what I think it really means. It means conformity, inequity, and exclusion is what it means. Addressing woke culture. Today's episode, we tackle a sensitive but highly politicized issue that's become uh, a highly charged conversation point in the digital and offline worlds. And to give a broader context, it's clear that the pandemic has not only birthed a humanitarian crisis of profound order, but has also exposed the deep fragilities in our society and the growing political divisions amongst us. And woke culture is one of those issues that is highly contentious, it's highly sensitive. And in the course of the introduction to my interview with our guest today, I speak of those sensitivities. So I won't speak at length now, but I would like to move on to introduce our guest today, who's uh, written extensively on these subjects. Uh, our guest is Michael Rechtenwald, who's a former professor of liberal studies at the NY University of the United States, where he served as a professor from 2008 to 2019. Now, what's interesting about Michael is that he was a self-declared Marxist whose entire worldview shifted over the course of his academic career when the political climate on campus began to change significantly, where he observed everything from uh, victimology, ca cancel culture, no platforming, political correctness. Uh, and he responded by creating a Twitter account to address what he saw as the excesses on campus uh, and predictably, his account was soon discovered and reached a point where he had to leave his academic career behind. He has gone on to write several books on the rise of woke culture, uh, including a book called uh, Beyond Woke. Uh, and he's also written extensively on totalitarianism and the Great Reset. In this particular interview, we explore the origins of woke culture and how it's deviated from its original beginnings and explore some of the present issues that are showing up within our mainstream culture. This is a difficult interview. It's obviously going to be one that's highly contentious, uh, but I think it's an important conversation. It's important that, yes, we have safe spaces for those who need those uh, types of conversations, uh, particularly where there's vulnerable members of society. But I do think we also need courageous conversations to tackle these social issues. And this is one of those courageous conversations. And you'll hear in my opening gambit the uh, nerves that I had in even bringing this conversation to the table, but it's important that we do find the courage to have open debate around these key topics. Uh, before we get into today's interview, I want to let you know of something that's coming up. Uh, last night, we had our monthly town hall conversation within the Elevate Network, and we explored uh, the fact that the political system is broken, not only in the UK, but in other places around the world. And I shared details of a forthcoming tour uh, which we are going to take out on the road in the UK to explore political solutions. So uh, you can tune into the replay from last night's session. Uh, but to find out more, I invite you to come and join us inside the Elevate Network at weareelevate.org. Okay, without further ado, sit back and enjoy today's conversation with our special guest, Michael Rechtenwald. Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, it's great to have you here on the Elevate podcast. Now, we were just discussing in preparation for this conversation the <laughs> intrepidation I have uh, coming into this interview because we've covered an all manner of topics over the last couple of years, uh, looking at the pandemic, some very divisive subject matter. I've taken an all manner of heat. I've had to develop an incredibly thick skin uh, examining some of the issues around the pandemic, the vaccines, the 
the kind of global globalist culture that's emerging, uh, you know, very divisive topics. Um, and one of the issues that we've touched upon, but not really dived into is the this cultural fragility, which is man manifesting in the culture wars and some of the elements of the woke culture that's that's emerging, the links between what we've seen around the kind of totalitarian response to the pandemic, some of the underlying trajectories and factors around post-modernity and how that's showing up as post-truth. But the specific, to target this conversation specifically head on, I know it is going to be very divisive and I'm willing to have that conversation. But coming into this conversation with you, uh, there's a there's a real heat behind the conversation and I, I, and I can already anticipate some of the reactions. But as a result of this, this to me speaks into what I've shared a number of times in the podcast recently, Michael, is that we've got this this old phrase of um, it's a revolutionary act to, to speak the truth. Well, we're now in a position where it's, it's a revolutionary act to simply speak because we are so yeah. stifled by these divisive topics that people are witnessing things they're uncomfortable about, but they don't know how to address the conversation. And this is where I am right now in this conversation. So I'm here as a humble student. Uh, you, you can take the, the guys of the academic again for this conversation and bring us up to speed because I, I want to understand what's happening here and how, how what we've witnessed within the pandemic and some of the trends are playing out through, through our culture. And I think what's interesting about bringing you onto the show, Michael, is that you you know, self-declared Marxist in the, in the first instance, and you've been on a journey that's led you on a different path. And, you know, we're seeing some of the roots of that Marxism potentially showing up today. And that's, that's kind of what I want to see and examine. So it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, please forgive my sensitivities around this. I hopefully we'll, we'll have a really productive conversation. Now it's my pleasure. And um, I want to start by apologizing for the uh, American export of wokeness to your country well tell me about that then you know is it an export where does it begin you know i mean i don't even yeah you know, right here i'm here to learn the origins you know what what is the definition how do we describe work culture what what does it mean where did it come from uh, how has it evolved I'm, I'm really curious let's let's begin there oh that's a big uh that's a big <laughs> sure but yeah. let me just say that uh first of all this his the social justice uh, as a term has a deep history and it, it extends all the way back to 1841, two and three. Uh, the first uh, usage of the phrase social justice was actually mobilized by a Trappist monk, a, an Italian uh, Trappist monk named uh, Luigi Taparelli. And uh, social justice was to be added to the Catholic doctrines of various types of justice like uh, uh, communicative justice and uh, whatever the Catholic notions of justice that came from Thomas Aquinas. And this uh, Luigi Tapparelli added social justice to the mix. And, and what he was talking about was nothing like what social justice is today. What it had to do with was it, it was a means uh, by which to address the issues revolving around the Industrial Revolution and the uh, immiseration of the working class, if you will, in, uh, in Britain. And uh, in particular Britain, because this was uh, where the Industrial Revolution first took off. And uh, it really wasn't about a redistribution of goods uh, like it came to signify later. 
by 1970s with John Rawls's uh, philosophy of social justice. It really had to do with uh, how do you treat fellow your fellow human beings, and it really was a charity scheme, basically uh, setting up a system of uh, charities and uh, direction of uh, well, you know between individuals, but also a, a kind of subsidi a subsidiarity, that is the smallest organization that can treat a problem should treat it, and only then should it go, uh, only if it fails should it go to a higher level. Uh, so it begins with the individual, goes to the charities, then maybe the province, maybe the, the town, maybe the state, maybe the federal government, or what have you, but... Uh, so then the term was changed uh, when the Catholic encyclical of 1892 was published, and it meant by then already, it meant basically a redistribution scheme. And then uh, it was taken up by leftists and liberals uh, as a means for redistrib uh, redistributing wealth. Uh, and social justice became came to mean basically redressing uh, systemic inequities, you know, systemic inequities in the, by, on a group basis now, not through charity, but basically through the state. Uh, so you could say that uh, social justice was basically socialism with holy water sprinkled on it. In the case of the Catholic uh, appropriation of the term uh, by the Pope. And then um, wokeness now is, uh, the term has an interesting history. It actually started off uh, to mean in the African-American uh, commu African community to mean basically hip to present day realities, you know, just awake to what's going on, uh, just awareness of, of issues. And then it slowly transmuted into an awareness of social and especially racial injustice. Uh, it made its way into the Oxford English Dictionary by, I think, uh, 2017, at which point it meant this, uh, where it's, uh, uh, keen or awake to social, especially racial injustice. So these two terms, social justice and wokeness, then became linked. Uh, so it was around 2016, 17, that wokeness basically came to stand for social justice. And it also imports, uh, social justice does now, it imported uh, very many other elements uh, besides this redistribution idea. It imported uh, all kinds of identity issues, uh, which came out of postmodern theory, really, postmodernism. Uh, and it came to mean <clears throat> basically uh, having to do with uh, the uh, equitable treatment of um, beleaguered minorities, whether they be racial, gender, uh, sexual proclivity, minorities. Uh, so uh, then it also, it, it, it imported some of the postmodern epistemological issues like 
uh, a kind of subjectivism uh, where you get to the point where you have, you know, my truth, uh, uh, this kind of uh, anti-objectivity, uh, this kind of uh, 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 you know, uh, basically this sort of skepticism for all objective reality and objective criteria. And then it also picked up social justice did, and then it's of course merged with wokeness. It picked up uh, Stalinist and uh, Chinese communist uh, techniques and disciplinary mechanisms, such as uh, auto critique, which meant the crit criticizing of oneself and one's ideology and also struggle sessions. Uh, struggle sessions where the group, you know, gangs up on a particular person and, uh, you know, attempts to to expose their ideological, um, uh, their ideological uh, errors, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it, this is where we get the cancel culture from. This is the Stalinist and uh, Chinese communist mechanisms of uh, auto critique and struggle sessions, they transmute into cancel culture. Uh, so, cancel culture really is a is a kind of struggle session routine uh, imported from Chinese communist and Stalinist uh, means. So, that's the kind of a short history of this. And uh, yeah. Well, I mean, just from the initial explanation of its origins to where it is today, that's quite a leap in terms of what it meant, how it manifests, how it shows up within culture and society. You've mentioned a couple of kind of uh, what I would describe as kind of generator functions as through post-modernity and the resulting subjectivity that's come with that. You've mentioned right. kind of overseas culture from china and other 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 kind of uh, philosophies what what in your mind is has been the most significant driver of the shifts within the culture which from its from its relatively humble origin well i think uh it it's essentially linked to uh a marxist uh, ideological predisposition to pit uh, basically, the underclass, uh, whether they be class, you know, economic class uh, constituents or identity constituents against some overlord or, you know, in the case of Marxism, the capitalist class, in the case of uh, wokeness, you know, the, the uh, identity categories that are supposedly oppressive, you know, like the white straight male and so on and so forth. So, this is the main sort of uh, ethos that it adopts from Marxist ideology, uh, that it has this kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, class struggle involved in it. Uh, the class could be, you know, as I said, it can be seen in terms of economics or, or it can see it, and it's transmuted into an identity issue or identity issues and it's seen in terms of uh, identity struggles with the, the oppressive classes, uh, or especially the oppressive class being the straight white male. Uh, and what I think got it accelerated, frankly, was actually 
and this is pretty controversial, but I'll say anyway, it was the rise of Donald Trump in the United States. Uh, this is when I saw uh, a, an acceleration and intensification of wokeness. Uh, first, I saw it in the university system, and this is what caused me to have a run-in with my own university, New York University. And then it got metastasized to the social body, the body politic, uh, and has been adopted by almost every institution on uh, that, uh, that there is, uh, almost all the dominant institutions and also uh, the corporate world, uh, the state, uh, in the United States, the alphabet agencies, uh, the military, everything. So uh, it has been, uh, they've used Donald Trump as a foil to accelerate this because he was the, the trigger, uh, to use one of their terms. Uh, they triggered, uh, Trump triggered this uh, acceleration, really. Well, I would like to unpack that. So on that basis, you, you were working academia at the time. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm very curious to hear how that showed up in academia, because it's often said that you know, culture almost flows from academic uh, institutions. I'm curious to know whether that you think that's a reflection of reality. Or, uh, but but I'm, I'm more curious to know your experience and how this started to show up, particularly within the context of what you've just shared. Yeah, I think it, uh, there is some truth to the idea that academia is kind of like the cathedral, to put it in uh, uh, Mencius Moldbug's terms. That is, it is the it is the papacy from which these pronunciations come, ex to the rest of the population. Uh, but I saw it showing up in uh, 2016 with uh, the adoption of uh, such things as, for example, safe spaces and uh, trigger warnings on syllabi. Uh, the no platforming of speakers began very, very much to intensify. I saw cancellations on my own campus. I saw space, safe spaces being erected. I saw bias reporting hotline being enacted so that a student uh, could report on the bias infractions of their fellow students, but especially their professors. Uh, that is, those who violated some bias infraction. This was instituted in at NYU in 2016. Suddenly, there was this bias reporting hotline, and I thought I saw it as a kind of Stasi state uh, being uh, being imparted on the university level in a very pernicious development, frankly. Uh, because it turned everybody into a kind of sentinel of surveillance on campus. And uh, they never even uh, defined what a bias infraction was, what a microaggression was. They just rolled this thing out, and all of a sudden, people were encouraged to report these biases. Uh, trigger warnings, which are, you know, academic, really, but did start, frankly, in feminism on the Internet, and then made their way into academia onto syllabi. And that, that is, uh, that's a slippery slope to basically banning books that are deemed offensive. And uh, it's gotten all the way to the point now where, you know, SOAS, for example, in London, you know, basically has banished all white male philosophers from their curriculum. So this is, uh, this is basically 
how this is rolled out, I think. And Trump was a trigger because he was anti-woke. He didn't really say why or what political correctness meant, but he kept denouncing it. And then uh, he seemed to represent every form of racism and uh, reaction that totally terrified the left and caused them to go into a mass hysteria, really. Mm. I mean, this is this is fascinating. I mean, the bias piece alone. Let's. I just want to pick up on that. We, we've had a, recently on the show a behavioral expert who, through the pandemic, has been examining human behavior during the last two years and mm-hmm. why some people are so accepting of grand narratives, why others challenge narratives. And he's identified something like two hundred different bi- types of bias and why they occur and how they show up. So, yeah, if you yeah. were. If you, and I suppose from what you're describing, there's the, the, these particular biases are with specific reference to identity or character traits. And to identity in particular. Did, did you show some sort of a bias against a particular identity group in the, you know, as instanced by your treatment of an individual or statements you made about a group? Uh, did you show some sort of bias towards transgender people, against transgender people, against uh, racial minorities, against religious minorities, except for Christians, which is okay, uh, against uh, what have you? That was basically the pretext, with, which was never explained, you know. Of course, if there's 200-some biases, they weren't concerned with all of them by any stretch of the imagination. They were concerned with a certain subset of biases having to do with identity politics mm. the other the other the issue i find complicated here is i look back at my time at university when i was 18 to 21 years old here in the uk um i deemed myself to be reasonably intelligent at the time but if i look back certainly some of my behavior during that time um certainly some some you know my, i've evolved as a human being a great deal since that time you know what i know now is is, is leaps ahead and you know my understanding of the world and how we interact is so far uh, evolved from my time at university and i, I i'm curious i i you know i i actually you know 18 legally an adult you know, now I feel like an adult. I've got a, I own a home. I've got a baby. <laughs> yeah, I've got a state car. How, 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 yes, much, much more adult. How much more adult could you be? Um, but at the time, you know, there was this youthful naivety. I think, and I'm curious about how all of this is showing up within within educational institutions because it's not just it's not just um, universities. It's, I'm mm-hmm. learning about this across other other forms of education. Right. I, I, I just don't know if maybe I'm wrong, maybe people would say, say otherwise, but I, I, I'd be curious to know with the limited worldview that one could possibly have uh, as, as a younger person, how, how you can start to make these cultural assessments. It's very difficult. You'd have to do some reading, you know, and you'd have to do some uh, study of uh, the histories of all this, and you'd have to see the context and understand how this stuff evolved and what it signifies. You know, you'd have to have some political uh, theory for explaining it, uh, you know, of course, you, you could go the psychological route as uh, Desmond does, or you could go into studies of ideology and just how they propagate and uh, what they do, you know, what are their effects. Uh, it's very difficult for an 18-year-old to walk into a classroom to make sense of what's happening, except 
to rather much more easier is just simply to imbibe it and repeat it ad nauseum because that's more that'll give you more success in that setting because that's what ex, uh, that's what's being propagated there it's much easier just to you know rant and rave go to a, a you know go to a lecture by charles murray for example and just call him a fascist and a racist and a sexist and a, and whatever and to keep chanting these things ad nauseum because this is what's encouraged actually they don't ask you to read charles murray they don't ask you to think about the issues this i'm just taking charles murray as an example that popped into my head mm -hmm. they don't ask you to examine the pretexts or the premises underneath of all this they just expect you to accept it and it, it went so far as to as, as this in uh, 2017 a student applying to stanford university the third rated university in the united states put on his uh, essay submitted as his essay for acceptance uh in answer to the question what matters to you and why he answered black hashtag black lives matter 100 times and that was the essay and they accepted him into stanford university mm. that's how far this has gone it shows to me that they're actually looking for these uh, kind of singers in a social justice choir they're not looking for critical thinking or examination they just want people to parrot back uh these rote plug-and-play phrases without any consideration about what's involved what it means whether it's true uh whether the premises underlying them are true etc cetera, etc cetera. well i mean there's a couple of points i want to advance on from here the firstly i'm just from your own background, just the links, you know, you, you've obviously experienced this during the height of the uh, reactional response to Donald Trump getting to power. Uh, that was happening in real time when, when you when you were working in, in, in academia. Um, but also, you, you know, from your own uh, declaration as a you know former Marxist yourself, contemplating becoming a, a, a Trotskyist, uh, for those that know a Russian-Ukrainian uh, Marxist revolutionary, uh, did you feel an inner sense of conflict as any of these things were playing out? Did you feel any sense of alignment with what was going on? Did you did you feel an alignment with perhaps what the intent was, but the means was most questionable to you? I'm very curious how how, how yeah. that played out for you. At, at first, it was more of a critic criticism of uh, all of this from the left. I was criticizing social justice and wokeness and identity politics from a Marxist leftist standpoint. And basically, my, critic, my initial criticism was that this is no way to improve uh, or overthrow capitalism. This is no means by which to unify the working class. This is divisive. This identity politics is destructive of the real left and all that. But um, I soon came to see that, in fact, the whole left had adopted this, including Marxists, and uh, they were all running with it. And then it really was no distinction in, in the left, and I, uh, I couldn't abide by the left at all, any segment of it. Uh, in fact, when I voiced these critiques from the left, I was attacked roundly by almost all elements of the left, uh, not only in the university, but outside of it. 
And uh, my criticisms were, as I said, made from a Marxist standpoint. And yet I was roundly rejected. And uh, I was a member of a left communist group at the time. And they put me on a basic show trial, uh, cyber show trial, if you will, and condemned me for a number of infractions that I had supposedly committed, which really had to do with sounding like uh, a member of the opposite tribe uh, appearing on conservative news outlets because my story became a national story here. Uh, so uh, I said, you know, I really can't have anything to do with this. And then I began to do some deep reading. Uh, you know, I had, of course, had done deep reading before. I was an academic, and, but my field was actually 19th century British science. <laughs> and uh, so I was starting to delve into now the history of communism. And uh, then I went into the economics and I came to reject it entirely. And then I had a wholesale rejection of all leftism. Mm. Yes, that's quite a turnaround. And I did it, it, it's, you know, in later in life, I'm not, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you, you were you were witnessing what was happening and you were obviously taking a, a contrary position to the to the the trends that were emerging you did that through essays you set up a twitter account what right. was the what, you, you've shared some of the responses from other segments of the left and obviously that didn't sound particularly favorable what 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 was the overall mix of um response to, to the material that you were distributing basically i was called every name in the book from a fascist to alt-right to white supremacist to uh, to a Nazi. And, you know, the whole panoply of epithets that are hurled at any dissenting uh, voice. And, uh, you know, none of this could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, I was turning into a, uh, a libertarian, a cultural libertarian and civil libertarian, not a fascist by any stretch. In fact, I was turning towards... Uh, individualism as a uh, an overriding uh, precept and belief which is anything but fascist because fascism is, is a collectivism it's it's a very collectivist ideology that stemmed straight out of marxist so uh, marxian uh, theory uh so i mean all you have to do is read uh, Mussi's, uh mussolini's intellectuals uh, a great book that'll tell you just how fascism came out of socialism but uh, yeah, I was getting all I was being pelted with all kinds of abuse uh, on my campus. I was uh, I was basically uh, totally isolated and uh, deemed a pariah. Uh, people wouldn't get on an elevator with me. Uh, I was then uh, after being lambasted on official email in the university by a bunch of uh, social justice warriors instead of chastising them. By the way, had I been another identity category, these people would have been fired summarily for what they were saying on, on public email. Instead, they moved my office to the Russian department, not a, a department I had nothing to do with, uh, in, you know, academically, and isolated me on campus. And I like to say, in my own personal gulag, uh, it was a completely uh, Siberia-like experience within the university. And and then what? I mean, how long did that continue for? I, you, you're you're that obviously can, no longer working 
NYU. Yeah, that, I, I sued those professors and the university for uh, for defamation and and uh, other and libel, uh, and uh, the case uh, was settled, uh, although dismissed because my attorneys couldn't overcome the uh, uh, the motion to dismiss. Uh, nevertheless, after that, I still settled with the university and left with a retirement package, frankly. Uh, plus a little cash payout. So uh, those who say I was fired or wrong, I was never fired. I retired in good standing, still have access to all of NYU's electronic and other uh, resources. Uh, had uh, was given a retirement package replete with uh, benefits. <laughs> so I wasn't fired. By the way, by the time I left, I was a full professor. I had been promoted in the interim during all this madness. They couldn't uh, reject my uh, application for promotion because they would have had to then really, uh, they really would have had a, a major discrimination case on their hands because uh, uh, I, I just compared to the other applicants, I was uh, overqualified for the promotion. So, I mean, I'm not going to go into that, but let's just say that it wasn't friendly. I left in January of 2019 officially. Mm -hmm. That's like two and a half years of dealing with this. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, well, you, you've gone on to continue your work and commentary. You've written a book, books on this. You, you've you've continued to write essays and examine the kind of the trends as they've evolved. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the this idea that I mentioned around reasonable in intent but questionable means to what degree is this playing out because this idea of social justice as you originally described from its origins again had a reasonable feel to it but but now yeah and and and, and to give context as well there are there are there are plenty of people inside of uh, the elevate community who care deeply about the various different issues that that that, that mm -hmm. uh, the kind of social justice movement uh campaign on but they feel very uncomfortable with the way in which things are manifesting through through violence right. aggression hate um discrimination uh burning buildings yes. all, all of these things they're very uncomfortable with so, right. so they so, should be so where 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 has this broken down and now and and well what it is is a, it's a totalitarian movement uh this is this is very clear. It is totalitarian in character, and that is to say, it abides no dissent, and it attempts to use all means at its disposal to crush its opponents politically, socially, economically, and otherwise. So it is a, it has taken on characteristics that resemble what happened in the Soviet Union with the Bolshevik Revolution and the Great Terror and the Red Terror and the purges and the, we have we don't have physical gulags we have digital gulags i've written about that in my book google archipelago we don't have uh real uh struggle sessions like as in china but we do have uh we do have uh effectively uh cancel culture uh so it's a totalitarian movement that has a great grip on the the whole culture uh, and society, and uh, it is a pernicious development that has no, no, no thing to do, nothing to do, with actually addressing or redressing the so-called 
beleaguered situation of of the underclass or the minority racial groups or even sexual identity groups or genders, uh, it uses those people as a means by which to destroy the so-called oppressors. That's really what it's about. It has nothing to do with uh, creating a situation of uh, equality or equity. It's actually an inversion ideology that attempts to flip the hierarchy on its head and uh, put those putatively at the top on the bottom and vice versa. That's why in the games derogatorily defined or called the oppression Olympics, you want to rush to the bottom because the race to the bottom is actually a race to the top, even though the, even though the race is running downhill. Yeah. I mean, this, someone said to me the other day in, in commentary, you know, I mentioned that we had a, an interview coming up on this particular topic. And they said to me that, you know, this, this idea of equality, diversity and inclusion sounds reasonable on paper until you read the small print where if you're white, middle-class conservative Christian, mm-hmm. etc some combination of the above, then it doesn't apply to you. And that might sound very contrarian, but actually in terms of our, what I witness, that there does seem to be evidence of that playing out almost that it's become, mm-hmm. you know, even if there is historical injustice within these communities, the idea that there's some latent unconscious bias that plays out today in our own behavior, I find I'm very skeptical of that idea, though I am also understanding that how our unconscious patterns can play a role in in how we we live. But but from my my understanding, those unconscious patterns are usually developed through childhood, our exposure to um, family. uh, And and again, they may have historic viewpoints that that they're adopted. But but, but, but the, the idea today that we should ostracize groups of people or discriminate against groups of people who are in some way ancestrally linked to former oppressors, I find very difficult to comprehend because that means that we're all part of the problem. And and that feels like yeah. the way this is being positioned. It could be very oh, yeah. naive of me to say, as I said at the beginning, I'm starting to get my head around this. And this is why I wanted to speak to you today to, to try and get a perspective on this. Would you be able to comment on, on, on that notion? Yeah, I think you articulated it very well. Um, and I think it's accurate. That is to say, uh, well, let me just go back and talk about the phrase diversity, equity, and inclusion and what I think it really means. It means conformity, inequity, and exclusion is what it means. That is, if you, it means conformity to their ideology. It means inequity if you don't conform, and it means exclusion from the community uh, for nonconformists. So now... It doesn't redress anything historically, and it's using people's identities as an as a means by which to destroy opponents. Uh, it doesn't have, you know. First of all, I don't believe in ancestral or class guilt. This comes out of Marxism. This idea of class guilt that you know, based on your history, your family history, that you have some guilt for the for the so-called transgressions of your ancestors. Secondly, you know, it got moved over, of course, into race 
And I don't believe in racial guilt either. I think that's a mis mistake. It's a crazy mistaken notion uh, that is based on all kinds of sl slippery reasoning that's never articulated really. But, uh, and then of course, whenever they can't find racism in you as an individual, it's ascribed to systemic racism, which is just a term that's used whenever they can't find it individually uh, playing out from individual attitudinal uh, uh, predispositions. So uh, historically, I would say, you know, where I come down on this is like, for example, if in fact that I have some possession that was stolen from your ancestors, I owe you that money or I owe you that possession. Like, for example, if your grandmother had stolen my grandmother's wedding ring, Okay, this is just hypothetical. We could flip it if you wish. I don't mean to impute guilt to <laughs> it's you. All right. it's all right. <laughs> and so. you had possession of that ring now. You owe me the ring. Okay, you know, if I'm the only living ancestor or descendant, I should say. So, you know, that, that I think is true. So in that sense, reparations, for example, in the United States uh, should fall to those people that actually benefited from something. But that's a very, very tiny uh, minority, and they probably don't even exist. It's very you would tracking that and tracing it would be absurd. Well, well also that's so, this is this is you know, going into the kind of the uh, example, almost role playing it in my mind. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. How do you know that my family stole it? <laughs> it yeah, that's it, right. It, you know, if someone didn't buy it off someone in history, then then it became an heirloom that got passed down. You know, yeah. the, 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 there is. It, if it's so historic to, to find the burden of proof now okay i understand we're oversimplifying around a very simple example and we're yes. talking societal and cultural and it's a little bit different but the, I, I get the message and it's 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 very difficult um and it's also you know if i found out that even if i found out that that, that my neighbor my physical neighbor here that something of this nature had happened 100 years ago and there was a theft within our families i might think oh that's a in the ass, but I'm not going to blame them. I'm not going to blame yeah, them. Right. They've got no connection to it whatsoever. You, you uh, wouldn't blame them. You might want the property back, but you can't impute guilt to them, except in the case that they refuse to relinquish the object. Mm. But in this case, you know, for slavery, for example, uh, you know, first of all, it wouldn't fall all against whites uh, if this kind of reparations were to take place. There were many black slave drivers, uh, but also traders. Uh, and uh, there were, you know, there's, there's, uh, this is, this is not fall along racial lines strictly. Mm -hmm. So there's no real way to adjudicate this. And in the case of the United States, the situation with African Americans in the United States, uh, to whatever extent they face uh, inequities and so forth, really hasn't to do with these they have to do with much more proximate causes that have to do with, in fact, the great society in the United States that decimated the black family by handing out welfare to mothers that weren't married, as opposed to those who had the husbands in the home. This destroyed the family and the black community. This is really what did it. So you can blame Democrats for that here in the United States, you know, not their arch rivals. And I'm not here touting a Republican line. I'm just talking about an analysis that actually works. I'm, I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat. Yeah, I think a lot of us are feeling politically homeless right now. Yeah, that's um, right. Um, 
so there's something I want to draw upon here just in terms of extracting the kind of thought process that underpins it using the example that you've shared you know the the, the, the ring let's say you know you want it back but, but but the person isn't willing to give it back is is that argument being made that systemically yeah certain uh, groups have benefited from history to a greater degree and therefore this is almost the social version of asking for the ring back or taking the ring yeah. back. That's exactly what it is. But it discounts all kinds of other things. For example, simply merit, you know, that people have attained their statuses based on merit and that there is ancestral advantage given to some people based on their, uh, how well their uh, ancestors did. But that I think follows on simply property rights. It's a property rights issue. Uh, There should be no reason to suggest that because your ancestors have done well economically that you owe somebody something on that basis that's not that doesn't stand a reason of course this all goes back to marxism at base mm-hmm. if you accept the marxist premise of exploitation which i do not then you can always justify this but it's never this is never really articulated by a lot of these people because they don't realize this is the root of it but the marxist theory of exploitation that at the point of production, the capitalist class exploits the worker, steals half of the proceeds effectively, and then, you know, keeps it to themselves. That's the premise. You know, it's all based on the labor theory of value, which I won't get into, but it's a false theory. Uh, the labor theory of value is bunk. And then, you know, this is where value comes from. It comes from labor strictly. That's not true. Uh, that's not true at all. Uh, so, you know, once you explode some of these premises that are underlying all this ethos, then you get freed from this nonsense because this is nonsense. Uh, There's no, there's no truth to the idea that somebody whose family did well in the past somehow owes somebody something from the past, even if they had no thing to do with that person, you know, Um, yeah, I mean, it it gets very complicated very quickly. I mean, I have some somewhat of a, I can have somewhat of an obsessive compulsive disorder with things that I do. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm obsessed around details and I once signed up to my family tree and I lost a weekend just clicking back, trying to find my entire family tree. I don't know what I was looking for. Some hope that connected to some sort of luminary. <laughs> that yeah, that's right. Some, <laughs> some noble origins. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Sure. I didn't get it. Yeah. I think I found the opposite. But, but the, the, the point being for that, to try and make sense of the entire history, if I was to go back and say, well, my present circumstances today aren't as good as they could be, what point during my, and, and actually, quite frankly, it was the opposite. But my, my family tree didn't, didn't come from a you know, wealthy lineage, quite the opposite. But but I don't look back thinking where did I miss out? What what, what injustice am I experiencing today as a result of my lineage of family? How have I been let down by my family tree, or how have mm. I benefited from my family tree? And I, I rather think about what are my life circumstances today, and, and what can you do about it? And yeah. What can I do about it? And what would I like them to right. look about tomorrow? And and if I aggregate that out to the societal level, I start to think, and because I'm keen. And I'd love to throw some other ideas at you in a minute in terms of where we are now in terms of parallels and how 
our generation of the last two years could end up repeating the same problem if we're not careful. Um, but uh, I think about social change and what 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 I'd like the changes I'd like to see in the world, and it's generally driven by a set of values that that include things like love, kindness, compassion, um, various other virtues I, I guess traditional mm -hmm. philosophical virtues that I would like to see myself embodying so that I uh, when I communicate with others I do so from a place of heart even if I don't agree with them um, because there's plenty we can all disagree on in the world mm -hmm. but but to do so in a way that is respectful uh, and to honor the other person as a human being uh, and to see that magnified out at scale that, 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 that we, we have a way of living amongst ourselves. And even though we see the world differently amongst the whole of society, of course, we're going to the seven, eight billion of us. We're not going to see the world the same. And how boring and tragic would it be if we did? Um, mm -hmm. But it almost bizarrely feels like that's the road we're on. It's this 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 uniformity of, of thinking. Yes, it, it this goes back to collectivism in general. What you described was a, a precept that basically we're individuals and uh, that our, our ethics and our behavior drive from ourselves as individuals and that uh, to make some sort of change in the world, we should do so ourselves. And rather than looking for some systemic change and, uh, and trying to bring about this systemic overthrow or change, this is a recognition that you have, and I agree with it entirely, is that the premise here is individual behavior, because this is A, all we can really change, and B, this should be the ethics on which we operate, because this collectivism is actually in unethical. Uh, it's unethical because it infringes other people's rights, their property rights, um, their rights to self-determination, free speech, and other rights. And so... When you begin with a, a methodological individualism, which is what uh, Ludwig von Mises, the great classical liberal philosopher and his econ economist argued, then you have the right premise for analysis. Uh, and uh, because the collective as such doesn't exist really, it's an, it's an abstraction from individuals. You know, I don't believe in class struggle as a reality. I don't believe that there is a working class that's this consolidated unit that uh, has the same interests and the same intentionality and the same consciousness in Marxist terms, the same, you know, uh, circumstances at all. Everybody's got different circumstances and everybody is uh, uh, bringing their own talents to bear I, I you know so that it 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 really dissolves into a free market economy, which is the most just and ethical means of uh, of just uh, of distributing wealth. Mm. So I, I mean, I, I look at this point. I've looked at this point around individualism and collectivism with with a reasonable degree of attention over the last couple of years because you know you and I haven't discussed what your views on the pandemic are, um, but mm -hmm. at one point my views were described as selfish because I was saying that lockdowns are going to cause egregious harms. The long-term ramifications mm -hmm. are going to be significant. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, uh, the government overreach that's playing out the corporatization mm -hmm. of many of the different things that were happening. I was, I was arguing that these, these measures are going to have much 
longer term cost than benefit as such you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. billions of days of children's education would be lost the the the, the healthcare systems would be overwhelmed for the next 10 years if not longer you know the patient and mm-hmm. we're already seeing that the patient waiting list yeah. the, the economic yeah. fallout we're now seeing so i was described as being overly individual and selfish but i was arguing that these costs are going to significantly outweigh the benefits of the or the perceived benefits of various policy whereas i actually mm-hmm. see that what my commentary was here was in the in the quote unquote collective interest, because I'm saying mm. if we if we actually zoom out and take a systems approach to looking at this and look at the aggregate more holistic ramifications of every policy decision, because we get into this myopic focus of like, okay, we've got this number, number of infections, let's get that down at all other costs. And and yeah, if we think like that about and but that plays out everywhere, I've come to discover that very narrow thinking. We don't think in systems thinking anymore, if we ever did. But but that that notion of individual, individual, individualism and collectivism, I, I think they, they are terms that have become deeply politicized. And oh, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, I, I do feel like I'm part of a community, both with sure. a network that I've created with the Elevate project. And we're all uniquely but, uh, What I would say to that is that you do, that one does better for the collective by pursuing one's own individual interests. Yes. I know that, I mean, this goes back to Adam Smith, of course. And uh, I, but I think it's actually true and it makes sense in terms of the division of labor, you know, with the division of labor, you have uh, people using their talents and it creates wealth. Mm. And this wealth is then distributed through the market. So when people pursue their own interests, they actually, uh, make for a greater pie of wealth uh, that's created, and that then impacts everybody. Uh, it, it's and this is not trickle down economics. This is actually economics 101. This means mm. that whenever I pursue my interests, I I have a certain niche and a talent, and that division of labor allows for the production of greater and greater goods and wealth and the differentiation of the market and it then it, it, it allows a much greater efficiency of production such that we get greater wealth from that efficiency uh, so if we all got reduced to basically doing the same thing uh, we're on you know family farms with no exchange we'd, we'd be living in poverty we'd be living in misery we might not even survive so Yes, I mean, I, yeah, I'm with you on the economics. I think it, where where it gets tricky, and I think this is where we can go to the next piece now. Is in fact, I was part of a panel today, and actually, one of the speakers said that the the, the real problem we're facing is the corporatization of markets, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, was was the Mises School and other you know, Austrian schools, etc., are in favor of free markets. It's yeah, uh, uh, and I am generally well, historically have been 100% behind free markets. But in the last couple of years, my concerns mm-hmm. have been raised around the overall impact of corporations, major corporations sure. on civilian life, but, but not just Absolutely. on civilian life, on governments. You know, so on one hand, we've seen kind of government overreach on the citizen side, classically, one rule for them and a, <laughs> one rule for others, but, but, but underreach when it comes to corporations and the, 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 the power mm. that they wield. But I'd like to examine this within the, cult, the, the conversation we're having here within the, the kind of this idea that's being posed as woke capitalism, but, but the role, mm-hmm. because the, 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 the uh, adoption of these ideas within 
kind of corporate world? How Because yeah. I, I see some links to what we've just been discussing here. Yeah, yeah, I've been talking about this. I've been writing about and talking about this a great deal, and I'm writing about it uh, in great depth uh, in my new next book for my next book, uh, which is about this. Uh, so I'm against corporatism too, which is what you've described here. But I think corporatism is uh, effectively when uh, the state and these corporations collude in order to produce effective monopolies of the economy. And this is what we're up against. Uh, and under the COVID regime, we saw the merging of corporate and state power. And this is something that's been going on uh, for a while. Now, as far as woke capitalism goes, what I see woke capitalism as is not just a PR ca campaign or advertising campaign uh, on the part of corporations to make themselves more appealing to the woke uh, community and buyers and it's not simply a gloss on their behavior. It is an economic structure, and it is a monopoly scheme. Uh, it is a means of which, by which to drive out certain competitors from the marketplace in order for the woke uh, corporations to, uh, to monopolize their particular niches. But it, it, it's really more of a cartel. Uh, it's a it's a cartel scheme. Uh, if you don't subscribe to wokeness and you know all the criteria of the stakeholder capitalism model or ESG scores, the environmental, social, and governance index, then you are going to be starved of capital. This is coming from the very top. This is being levied by such players as uh, BlackRock Inc. and the uh, Vanguard Group and uh, State Street and UBS and uh, other uh, major uh, multi-trillion dollar asset managers who are forcing these issues through the marketplace, not through government right now, but through the market. And this is a scheme to monopolize. This is a cartel operation. This is not unlike the kinds of uh, monopoly schemes undertaken by the so-called robber barons in the 19th, late 19th and early 20th century. Now, yeah, so I, I'm, I, I, yeah, I see, I see this in many different sectors. Um, uh, in terms of this particular conversation around wokeism and the corporatization, I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out if it, whether this is a kind of chicken and egg situation. Where, where does it begin? Where does it end? Is this corporations witnessing a cultural trend and using it to capitalize uh, on that particular trend? Mm -hmm. or, or are they part of the, you know, are they part of the origination of this, this culture, which, you know, where does it begin? When does it end? Because it, my mind just goes to, you know, if they say there was a counterculture revolution and, you know, conservatism became the most positive, you know, uh, prominent uh, way of thinking, yeah. would, would, sure. would, would the corporations flip to go with the culture uh, just to maximize? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, sorry for sort of speaking over there a second. Um, I got to watch that. Uh, but um, I think it, it does originate on the ground uh, ideologically. But then the corporations appropriated this and used it as a shibboleth that they use now as a kind of demarcation device uh, for cartelization, for creating a woke cartel. And uh, then uh, they now are the main drivers of this. Uh, so... This, yes, it has cultural roots, but it's become 
uh, adopted and then used and now weaponized uh, in the economy by these major corporations to uh, to drive uh, their own interests. And uh, there isn't a uh, it isn't the phrase should not be go woke and go broke. It should be go woke or go broke, because that's really what it amounts to. Um, that that speaks to a scheme to take this woke ideology and to drive it into the economy as a means for demarcating the woke from the unwoke and likewise making the woke the beneficiaries there it's a kind of a, in economic terms and marketing terms it's a, the first adopter is always the most uh uh, gets the most benefits from any particular development like this. Uh, so they're trying to get out ahead and adopt this first and make it the mechanism, the means by which they uh, dominate the economy. Mm. I mean, I'm also seeing here the kind of role of the World Economic Forum, you know, for the last, I don't know how many years it is, 50, 60 years, you know, promoting this model of stakeholder capitalism. But by doing that, right. they, ha they, have they have intrinsically brought politics into business because... Absolutely. Um, but the difficulty then is that these cultural trends, the political trends, it creates market imbalances in the way that Absolutely. Uh, companies portray themselves. And it, to me, that further exacerbates existing cultural fragilities. It, it exacerbates uh, division and polarization and look Absolutely. at where we are. We're, we're, we are falling apart as a, as a, as a, as a community of human beings on this one little rock in the sky. You know, we are. Absolutely. So, so I, I'm very concerned about the trajectory we're on, but, but, but it seems like the rocket fuel is behind this trajectory of, uh, of stakeholder capitalism driven by the WF. But here's where I think get, things get interesting. I, and I'm curious about your perspective on this. And uh, I'm also interesting to look at the parallels is the the culture we've described right now is not just the culture. It's it's within acad academic institutions. It's within business. It's within politics. It's within sport. And effectively, it's become the establishment. And that's right. You know, we, if you look at the 1960s, which in itself was a counterculture movement, interestingly enough, um, the, uh, you, you might comment on this as well, that that may have been the kind of original accelerant of this type of uh, more postmodernist subjective uh, uh, ascent. Um, but I'm curious of whether now there will be a comparable counterculture revolution where there's a, a new a new rallying against the, the establishment and the current culture. It's going to be a very difficult one because of the way uh, the opposition has been figured, uh, represented and figured by the dominant institutions. Uh, you see, there's in, in progressivism, there's always the sense of the, the progressive, the new, the, uh, the, uh, the, the avant-garde is superior to the retrograde, the, the backward, the reactionary, as they figure this. So a counterculture now would have to look like a reactionary movement in the, in the terms under which this has been set up. Uh, it would look like a retrograde movement, and it's being figured that way as such. 
so a return to a free market without these distortions of wokeness, which create, as you said, they distort the market, they distort the culture, uh, they create further divisions that actually help the elite at, at the expense of the vast majority. This has to be recognized and the, this has to be refigured in terms that actually look radical. So the counterculture has to look radical and not regressive in its approach to all this. Mm. And the way to do it is to unite the you to unite the left and the right against the elite, not the ruling class as in class structure, but this is a political and economic elite that are in bed with each other. If the left and the right can see that they have a common uh, uh, rival, uh, and it's not to depose capitalism and overthrow uh, capitalism in favor of some socialist utopia, because that's what these people want. Uh, the World Economic Forum leaders are actually socialists at base. Uh, the reason why elitists want socialism is because it's a monopoly system, just like monopoly capitalism. It's a monopoly, and they will always maintain their position at the top of this monopoly scheme. So uh, we have to make the counterculture look radical or it will never be adopted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that you'll own nothing and be happy begs the question, someone will own. <laughs> Something's, you're going to rent everything you own. <laughs> who's going to be the guy that's renting it to you? Who's going to rent it to you, you know? Well, and, uh, yeah, it's animal farm. Some animals are more equal than others. You know, it's, uh, it's, that's, that's, the, that's the problem within that ideology. Um, right. They um, know what's better for you, and they will, you'll be better off when they manage and control the whole economic system because you can't be trusted to drive cars and eat meat because you're going to destroy the world. And likewise, we have to take over. We must control all of your behavior. We must control the economy. We must have all woke corporations. Uh, this is basically the premise, and it's a disempowering, disenfranchising, utterly uh, elite, elitist scheme uh, that leaves the rest of us basically without any recourse, you know. And they're doing the same thing with, for example, uh, some of the technologies and their adoption, you know. They're figuring anybody who uh, opposes, like, for example, the rolling out of the metaverse as the way we live. Uh, they're they're going to figure this as, uh, you know, anti-technology, uh, Luddite, neo-Luddite fanaticism, you know. Mm -hmm. So this is the way that this gets structured so that opposition looks backward, you know. That's how this, how this works. That's how progressivism uh, figures its opponents. Mm, I mean, there's there's a lot of things to unravel here. So, it, for me, this is an interesting examine. This this kind of idea of counterculture is an interesting one. I mean, we've we I've been talking about social change in, in terms of what that means to me in the context of where we are in the pandemic and how things need to, uh, you know, the kind of the environment that we're we're living in now. Some of the some of the issues we've just discussed as at the forefront of those issues. But I've come to realize the, the progressivism, the idea of progress, and Charles Eisenstein, who's recently been on the show, speaks about this, and we spoke about it in our interview, is that that itself, the, the, the idea of progress is part of the problem. But from, yes. from, from my p perspective, there's a, there's a piece of social change that actually requires preservation because yes. the uh, progressivism or progress assumes almost by default that everything is broken and needs to be fixed. What it right. fails to recognize and appreciate 
is what actually is beautiful, what is wonderful, what is what is what makes our society great, what makes us, uh, you, you know, uh, what, what keeps us alive, you know, the, the joy de vivre. And that, that requires a preservationism, which interestingly is a yeah. more conservative ideology, typically. typically. So we've right. seen this imbalance almost. And I, 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 no matter how I address, address this issue, I, I just feel like there's a need for synthesis. There's a need, there's a need for an integral way of thinking. And there's mm. a, you know, Ken Wilber's work on integral thinking, but you've also mm-hmm. got this emergence now of this idea of metamodernism, metamodernism mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. actually finding balance between modernity and post-modernity. Because in, in many ways, mm-hmm. post-modernity arrived as a result of the, the excesses of modernity. And now we're at the other end of like the excesses of post-modernity. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, I, 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 whether this is a pendulum or effect or more like an echo, you know, we've got this kind of like zigzagging to the extremes of one end of the polarity. And we never, we never come to the stillness of just, okay, well, we can have this objectivity and subjectivity. They can live in harmony. We can have the individual and we can have the collective. They can live in harmony. We, we, never, we, we never seem to reach that point. We always swing straight past it and back to another yeah. ext- extreme. Um, right. So where we are right now, it's interesting the terminology that's being used. A lot of people who are talking about the corporatism, the, 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 the trajectory of the Great Reset, the terms that are used are awake. We're awake to the, these patterns, similarly mm-hmm. to, to, to the woke terminology. We're actually rallying against the current establishment, as mm-hmm. were the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of counterculture movement in the 60s. This, I mean, there's so many parallels to what resulted in the kind of hippie movement, the counterculture of the 60s to where we are now. But it's, it's almost mm-hmm. happening in reverse, it feels like. It's a response or reaction to an overextending philosophy that emerged yeah uh, so my con- my interest around this is is this then going to lead to that counterculture and if so you know the 60s you know, everyone dressed differently it was radical like you say it, it, it's it, it you know it, it distinctly stood out for mainstream culture are we mm-hmm. can we anticipate something of that nature now the fact yeah. that more people are talking about these issues the fact that you know we've started with my trepidation and other people are feeling that trepidation. I know they are because of the vitriol that comes with it. And you know, you 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 lost your by by your own choice, by the sound of things. But 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 you were you, you didn't feel comfortable in the institution that you were part of because of where it went. And this is happening right, right. now. People either people don't want to speak up because they're afraid of the vitriol and what it will come. But but it's start. I'm starting to see more people raising their voice and saying, "Well, hang on a minute. I'm not comfortable where this is at." So is is there? Do you think is there a seed of a counterculture emerging? Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. This this is very much uh, is very much a counterculture that's being developed. That's uh, that's emerging uh, without a question. Um, my my concern with it is, as I said, that it's that it is able to represent itself pro- uh, in the way that it'll make. A difference that it could uh, overturn uh, some of these trends and uh, to do so in a principled fashion uh, that has principles that it's advocating for. For example, you went back, you, you mentioned that, you know, uh, progress and progressivism uh, assumes that there's nothing to preserve that's worth worthwhile. So, you know, this is true in the, in the U.S., for example, uh, you have the left basically using the affordances given by 
the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights in order to destroy the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So they're using free speech in order to destroy free speech. They're using the free market uh, to destroy the free market. They're using individual rights of their own to destroy the individual rights of others. Uh, this is where it leads. And uh, so it has to be a principled opposition that knows what principles to preserve. And then progress happens technologically. This is almost inevitable. The technological progress will take place, that economic benefits will increase with the increasing wealth of, of society, uh, that uh, greater comfort and ease could be the result depending on how this is administered, how the technology is administered. But first, we need to get back to uh, primary uh, premises. We need to get back to the principles uh, that would make this kind of progress work without uh, destroying the very thing that we're trying to improve. Hmm. I think that's the key here. And I think what's what's interesting is you know our community we've got people who and i think there's a there's a there's a growing conversation around how the traditional left and right paradigms are no longer uh, appropriate and i think that mm -hmm. there is some degree of that being true but at the same time i think that's largely been born out of the kind of different segments that have emerged within the traditional left and right you know it's it's almost been segmented into these different categories which makes it difficult to uh, you know for people to identify where they belong on the on the scale but but, right. but there's, there's this increasingly on on the kind of slightly left of center and the slightly right of center this increasingly desire to actually you know marry the two progress mm -hmm. and preservationism and and yeah. that that to me is if we can find that balance well you know and come to accept that point i think we'll find a lot more harmony in the world but it's it's the reality we've got these uh, and, you know, we've talked briefly about totalitarianism and, and Matthias, when he was here recently, talked about the conditions that lead to mass formation, lead to totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And one of those key elements is uh, background anxiety. You've got social discontent. You've got um, uh, loneliness and isolation. Uh, I always forget the fourth, but uh, uh, meaning and purpose, uh, but the, we lack, yeah. of meaning, lack of meaning and purpose. But this idea of loss of social bonds, we see within these kind of emergent communities, people are getting a real sense of belonging. And uh, with, as the world becomes more fragmented, because that political spectrum has become incredibly fragmented, we've also got this, you know, uh, postmodern uh, understanding of identity, which fragments things even further. So mm -hmm. we've now got these micro communities emerging where there is this belonging and it's it, it, where it's meeting that desire for belonging, but it's bringing us further and further apart as, as, a, as, a, as a humanity as a whole. I, I'm curious how we can break that pattern of, 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 of the, human beings almost feel like they have this wired need for belonging, but, but, but mm -hmm. how do we escape the desire to be politically belonged? Because I, the way I look at politics, you know, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but it's, it's almost like... The blue team versus the red team, and if you belong on the red team, you're always going to jeer the blue team, even if you even if you prefer the blue team, even if the, you know. It's, yeah, it's you, tribal. It's a tribalism. Yeah. 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 I think we we have to unite on the questions of principle, and also, uh, it's it's got to be a battle place of ideas. Uh, there's it's still going to have to be fought in the battle place of ideas. So some people are going to have to 
basically rethink some things, including myself. Uh, everybody will have to rethink some things to see where, in fact, we have common ground. And then to, you know, you mentioned, you know, preser preservation. I think that is integral to integral theory. That is the idea that you, you both subsume and uh, you transcend uh, something at the same time. So, I mean, Engels, uh, speaking of Marxism, Engels called this sublation in which the, there's an element that gets taken over, but it's subsumed without being destroyed simultaneously. That's the kind of process that we need. And um, I believe that it revolves around uh, uh, really simple principles uh, and uh, that we can... Uh, basically come to some common ground on the basis of these principles. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. This is, this has been a really, really important conversation and uh, thank you for making it an easy uh, step into this, uh, this difficult world. Uh, you, you've shared a very uh, broad view of the history and um, some of the guiding philosophies and cultural uh, elements that, that are all intertwined within this difficult conversation. So thank you very much for, for, for your time here today. There's, there's an abundance that I, yeah, I think we're going to have to get you back. There's an abundance that I'd like to ask even further on this, or we could even put together some panels because the other big piece that I think is missing is this, uh, one of my previous guests called is the God-shaped hole and how this, mm. this, you know, how these various behaviors are playing out in a kind of Puritan, almost religious sense. And there's a, there's a whole, hour-long conversation i think on the, on that piece yeah of the absolutely yeah sure it's great uh, it's a pleasure to be here thanks so, yeah. so much for having me indeed uh, and, and in terms of uh, for people to follow on uh, with your your work your books your, your social channels what are the best places for people to look for your material i keep i keep it all in one place michaelrectonwald.com that's michael rectonwald r-e-c-t-e-n-w-h-w-a-l-d no h no k MichaelRectonwald.com. Everything's there. Essays, books, interviews, media appearances, uh, also uh, events, speaking engagements, etc. Thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. This has uh, been a fascinating conversation. And uh, for our listeners at home, let us know your thoughts on the conversation today. We've opened the door now. Uh, let's have uh, courageous conversations about this. Let's be open and respectful to, to a different views on this and let's learn from each other so uh, let us know your thoughts in the comments and if you'd like more conversations like this uh, please do come and join our mailing list at danastingregory.com forward slash podcast and if you'd really like to delve into topics uh, around this one we have a private network called the elevate network which you can join at weareelevate.org where we're examining a whole range of uh, cultural and social and systemic issues that the world is facing so it'd be a pleasure to host you there too so thank you again uh, michael and thanks to our audience at home Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Michael Rectonwald. As I set out at the beginning of the episode, this was always going to be a sensitive and highly politicized conversation, but I do think it's important that we start to create the courageous public spaces that are necessary in order to tackle some of the difficult cultural and social issues of today. In fact, not, not, ex, not exclusively uh, restricted to um, social and cultural issues, but more broad political and economic issues that are affecting all of our lives. And as I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, we are planning a tour, the Raise the Nation tour, to get out across the UK to talk about how the political system is broken and that how by coming together we can find new solutions, we can build alternatives, and we can create solutions to the pressing problems that are facing 
uh, our live livelihoods in the UK. Uh, so to find out more, I invite you to come and join us inside the Elevate Network at weareelevate.org and look out for our next live episode on Monday where we'll be talking more about, or I'll be talking more about the tour that we're planning uh, to deliver over the coming months alongside the political hustings that are taking place amongst the Conservative Party uh, candidates, party leadership candidates. So watch this space. Again, head over to weareelevate.org, join our community and keep up to date with uh, everything that we're working on. Thanks again for tuning in. Please do share this episode. and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode of the Elevate podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.